Hello, friends, and welcome to the Enlighten Me podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie, and you are listening to episode 88 of the show. Before we dive in today, I want to take a second to thank a sponsor who is helping to make this show possible. Today's show is made possible by Simply Straws. Simply Straws is a female-owned and family-operated business located in sunny Southern California that handcrafts reusable drinking straws. Simply Straws offers the highest quality glass and stainless steel straws on the market, in addition to other zero-waste products like cleaning brushes, and utensil sets. This small business is also a certified B Corp for their environmental work and a proud member of 1% for the planet. For all things reusable straws and utensils, Simply Straws has you covered. Use the link in the show notes to shop Simply Straws today. Alright friends, we're back with another amazing episode of the podcast, and can I start by saying that I am so privileged to do this show because of all the people I meet who I consider my friends? Today's guest is no exception to that. Welcome with me to the show, Raquel McLeod. Raquel is someone I connected with years ago online and have always said I wanted to have on the show because her story is just so crazy and I think everyone needs to hear it. As you'll hear her explain today, many people say it's like a lifetime original, and for good reason. Raquel's story is one of enduring childhood trauma, abuse, and all the circumstances it seems like life could throw at her, but it's also a story of beauty from ashes, and today you're just hearing the first half of it. I have to give Raquel a special shout out because she was a champ and did this interview not once, but two different times. That's right, the audio was lost after we spent two hours together recording the first interview. I was so devastated that I could not share that interview with y'all, but selfishly, I was really excited to sit down with Raquel again and get to catch up, and really grateful that she agreed to try it again. So the audio quality today is not the best between traveling on her end, spotty Wi-Fi on my end, dogs and kids, a lot was going on in the background, but we wanted to make sure we didn't lose our audio again, so please roll with us here. You're going to get lost in Raquel's story anyways, and I know it's going to leave you wanting more, so make sure that you tune in for part two next week. You need to make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you know when that is available. And would you also consider leaving a rating and a review for the show? Ratings and reviews help me so much. They help more people to find the show. They help people in need because I donate $2 for every review I receive, and they help me to feel good about myself. So please take a few minutes to write one. It really truly only takes a couple minutes. Raquel and I would also really appreciate it if you'd share the show with friends. Share it with everyone you think needs to hear this story, and post online that you're listening and tag me and Raquel both. The links to connect with us online are in the show notes, and you can look at those on whatever app you're currently using to listen to this show. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Raquel McLeod. Okay, hey Raquel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Can you just start with introducing yourself for everybody who's listening? Yeah, I'm Raquel McLeod, and I'm a wife, a mom, and a self-proclaimed artist and writer. Yes, you are a very talented artist and writer, in my opinion, from what I've seen. <laughs> but yeah, you. we we met online. I started following your journey, I think, a few years ago, really. You do a lot of cool stuff online. So why don't you tell us like a little bit about your family? And uh, I know you guys are, I don't know if you'd call yourself nomads, but you are on the move a lot. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we are, I would say, nomads, even though we don't do it quite like what's trending right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It would be nice to get to pick our destinations, but we don't. We follow my husband's work, um, Mm -hmm. but we sold our house and we live in a 39-foot 
pull behind camper full time. It's me, my husband, two kids, two dogs, and two guinea pigs. Um, <laughs> so it's been uh, since, let's see, we've been traveling since June of 2017. So coming up on four years this month. Yeah, that's so cool. And are you guys mostly in like North Carolina? Is that right? Uh, we tend to stay in the southeast, but okay. we have done Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, Tennessee, um, Ohio. I think okay. that about covers it so far. Yeah, yeah. All over the place. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And are the dogs new? I feel like I saw a post recently <laughs> that you got a puppy. So <laughs> our oldest pup passed away. And we were not going to jump into getting a new puppy to add. We were very content with, we have an older dog um, that we've had for 12 years mm -hmm. and was content with that until my husband and children weren't. And so mm -hmm. we do have a new puppy, a very, very energetic new <laughs> puppy that. I'll, I'll never have a puppy again. Not one that young. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's added a whole new layer of work. Not the same yeah. as a brand new baby, but it's a close it's second. It's similar. <laughs> it's similar. Yes. I know it. I know it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get it. I know it. We have a dog and he's older and even having a dog on top of having kids is a lot. And I always tell my husband, I'm like, no more dogs until our kids are all old enough to help. We're not going to do toddlers <laughs> and dogs at the same time ever again. <laughs> it's a lot. It is a lot. Okay. And so, like I said, we met online. I don't even remember how I found you, but started following each other a while ago. It must have been through yeah. hashtags or something like that. But um, I bet it was through like the eco-friendly, like yes, reduce, reuse, yeah. recycle, things like mm -hmm. of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, I feel like we have so many common interests and I just, I love what you do online. You have a lot of different like messages that you're putting out there, but can you tell everybody like about your online work and kind of what inspired you to start sharing about your life? Cause you are very vulnerable online for people that don't follow you. You share a lot of personal <laughs> stuff. So can you kind of tell us what uh, inspired you to start doing that? Yeah. So I did, I grew up kind of hard, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. um, definitely did not have a cookie cutter family or childhood. And I endured a lot of abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. And I guess anyone that endures, walks through any type of journey like that, you kind of question why. And so for a lot of years, I just assumed that we all have our own baggage that we have to learn to deal with. And I just let it fuel addiction and anger. And whenever I met my husband, we started going to church. And I guess I was really, I'd never blamed God for my circumstances, but mm -hmm. I definitely questioned him, you know, like, if you're so good, like, explain this, explain, you know, why any child would endure this. And mm -hmm. just one day, I, I just felt really strongly that he spoke into my heart, not like an audible voice, but I just felt it laid on my heart that, you know, if you can walk toward healing, you can help others, you can be that voice of relatability, you can offer something that someone who has not endured that can't 
offer. And Mm -hmm. so it started with high school ministry and the church that we attended at the time was one of the biggest in our, I call it a small town. Now that we travel like we do, I realized it's not actually a small town, (laughs) but the youth group of that church was about 300 on a given Wednesday night is how many high schoolers we would have. And, uh, you know, all churches tend to ask for help, you know, like get involved in ministry, you know, do what you're called to do. And I ignored it for a really long time. I just felt drawn to high school ministry. I wanted to talk to the kids that were vulnerable and put in the same situations that I was. I wanted to offer hope that, you know, life does move on. You can find healing or work toward healing. I don't know if we ever are complete in that. I think it's a lifelong process, but Mm -hmm. that you don't have to, you don't have to repeat cycles. You don't have to succumb to the depression and the anxiety and the trauma that you've endured. Like you can still make something of your life and you deserve happiness. Just kind of that, just offering hope. That's what I really wanted to do. Um, But I was really scared to do that because it is hard. Um, At this point, I, I feel like I make it seem like it's no big deal to share the vulnerable things that I share, but it's come from years and years of doing it. To begin with, it's really scary to put your story out there and then add into it. At this point, I was in my early 20s. It's way scary to go into a group of high schoolers who, you know, judge everything you do and show up authentically. And so for about a year, I felt really strongly like I needed to be in high school ministry. And I just I kept running. And I just my depression kept getting worse and worse. And I just all of a sudden I just hit a breaking point and I went up to, after service one day, I went to the high school minister and was like, hi, I'm Raquel. And he was like, yeah, we went to school together. And I'm like, oh, this isn't starting well because I had a reputation. (laughs) (laughs) Like we did. Do you remember me? Good. Like, yeah. (laughs) um, And so that, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I did four years of high school ministry and started sharing my stories authentically first in small groups with, Mm -hmm. I had a group, I started with freshman girls and it worked out instead of continuing each year with a new group of freshmen, I actually got to be their leader throughout their entire high school career. I went to their graduation still in touch with a lot of them. Like it was just Mm -hmm. this really great experience to grow with them and then develop that trust in me. So it started with just being raw and authentic with them. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting invited. Once my story kind of circulated, I was invited to share with groups of women at gatherings. And then we started traveling And Mm -hmm. so I was kind of left with this, okay, I still feel like I'm meant to share my story because a lot of people have said that it sounds like a lifetime original and when (laughs) you string it all together, it kind of does. And so in my heart, it felt like I didn't live through all this to just do nothing with it. You know, I don't want to have lived it in vain. And so I had a Instagram at the time that I was using for my jewelry business 
and mm-hmm. the jewelry business had to go when we started traveling as well. I just didn't have room to pack all that in 150 square feet. So I made my thank you for following my business post, see you later type deal, mm-hmm. um, and then followed it up with, but if you want to stick around, I think I'm going to be sharing a few things on here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started, I was going to kind of do like one of those trendy travel blog type things. And it just yeah. wasn't, it didn't feel authentic to me. Like I feel most authentic when I am being vulnerable in some mm-hmm. of the harder moments of my life that I've walked through. And so the travel thing didn't, didn't really pan out. And I just started sharing pieces of my story and realized that, it mattered to more than just high schoolers. It also mattered to women my age, mothers, Mm -hmm. grandmothers, these people that felt like they were being seen and understood through my stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I love all of what you do. Like I said, like you're sharing about really hard, but like important topics, like whether it's mental health or marriage or like body image like you share about so much and like I said you're so vulnerable and that's what people need so I think it's really cool and it's crazy kind of the timeline of things like even from my perspective because you know for several years when I followed you it was like you know you had a good following but it wasn't like anything crazy and then I feel like right around the time and then I asked you if you wanted to do an interview, your account like exploded. And now you have like, yes. what, like 20,000 followers or something like that? Uh, I think around a little over 18,000. Okay. So okay. getting yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's so cool, though. So we're going to talk kind of about uh, what happened to, I guess, set, send your account over the edge and, you know, why all these people are following you and your story. That's kind of what we're here to talk about today. Um, and so I'm wondering if we can just start at the beginning, take us back. Um, you mentioned your childhood, how you grew up rough. So yeah, what, what do you want to tell us about your childhood and how you grew up? Feel free to share as much as, as you want to, but love to start yeah. at the beginning there. Ah, yes, my childhood. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I like to try to be poetic, and I've dabbled in poetry a few times, and I've Mm -hmm. said that Mm -hmm. I was a product of lust, which is pretty Mm -hmm. true. My father had his first child at 16, and her mother was ready to settle down and be responsible And my father was not ready. And so Mm -hmm. she actually moved out of state and raised my oldest sister out of state. And then my father got my mother pregnant when she was 18, I believe. And they were both just heavy into the party scene and drugs Mm -hmm. and just not ready to grow up. And so... I apparently was found in a lot of dangerous situations and Mm -hmm. my paternal grandparents stepped in and decided that it would probably be best if they raised me. And so Mm -hmm. whenever I was two, my grandparents got custody and that was the last time my mom ever came around so my biological mother lives in my hometown the town that I lived in for most of my life and she could Mm -hmm. stand beside me in the store and I wouldn't know it um Mm. so I didn't even know the woman's name until I was 13 which is something I actually talk about a lot 
because it wasn't handled well, um, adoption that is. And Mm -hmm. I was never officially adopted. My grandparents gained custody, but they didn't finalize the adoption, um, Mm -hmm. for fear of offending my father was essentially the basis of it. But handling my mother's absence was not done well. And so Mm -hmm. there was just a lot of guilt and I was made to feel like I wasn't able to ask about her questions about her, Mm -hmm. talk about her, bring her up. And so we just didn't. And Mm -hmm. I think that probably I've always felt like it didn't bother me, but perhaps that helped fuel a lot of my own misbehaviors. And I think about 12 years old is whenever it hit just my mother's absence. And then my father, I like to say, was consistently inconsistent. He <laughs> he had a good heart. He really did. And he loved me the best way that he knew how. But he allowed addiction to control his life until he died. So I think all of that just kind of fueled this trauma response inside of me. And so by 12 years old, I started sneaking cigarettes out of my grandmother's cigarette purse, which isn't anything anyone says now. Maybe that ages me, but (laughs) old women used to have cigarette purses. Um, And I always knew when I could take from it. If there was too many, if it was a fresh new pack, I couldn't take from it. She would notice. And if there was just a couple left, I couldn't take from it because she would notice. I had that down to a science. And so I guess 12 is whenever it really started to impact me. And then by 13, I was full-fledged wild. I Mm -hmm. started spending weekends at my dad's house because he didn't have rules. And I was allowed to drink liquor and smoke weed at 13 years old. And Mm. he, the only thing he said was, if you're going to smoke, I'm not buying them for you. You'll have to make the money on your own. And so I did. And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, kind of a crazy childhood. So with the introduction Mm -hmm. of drugs and alcohol at 13, I also became very promiscuous that whole daddy issues is it's a thing. Like there's a reason that that's cliche, like especially after working Mm -hmm. with hundreds of kids Mm -hmm. and at this point grown women too, it seems like an absent mother doesn't seem to affect your life the same way that an absent father does. And so by 13, I was very wild. I would drink regularly. I would hide vodka in water bottles in my bedroom and sneak it into school and drink. I went to school drunk. I smoked weed regularly, which wasn't elite. I don't think that was legal anywhere back when I was doing it in the early 2000s and not legal anywhere for a 13 year old. Um, Right. Yeah. I don't think that will change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then it got a little more dangerous. It went from just weed and alcohol to someone could hand me a handful of pills and I would take them. I didn't even know what they were. And it's Mm -hmm. really, it's really a miracle that I'm here. There's no telling what all Mm -hmm. I put in my system, just trying to the pain 
that I felt the the abandonment issues, just everything that compiled at this point in my life, at the beginning of this, the onset of this, I had never been sexually abused. And I know I talk about sexual abuse a lot. That did not start until I put myself into some really tricky situations at 13, some dangerous Mm -hmm. situations. So at this point, I was just trying to heal this imperfect childhood, the absence Mm -hmm. of parents, um, because my grandparents were great. They loved me well. They were really great people. And the goodness in me can be attributed to them and the foundations that they laid. My grandpa was like my best friend. And so drugs, drinking, sex, and it all came to a head at 14 when all of a sudden my period was late. At first, I just thought I was being paranoid, but, you know, a few weeks in, I was like, all right, maybe I should take a test just to confirm that I'm being paranoid. So I had a friend pick up a test from Walmart, and I locked myself in the bathroom, and then two blue lines showed up, and I discovered that I was, in fact, pregnant at 14 Mm -hmm. years young. Mm -hmm. So... That was the beginning and the end of that season of my childhood. And what happened after that brought about its own trauma. But just my own reckless decisions coupled with grooming and toxic relationships ended up mm-hmm. with an early pregnancy, a teen pregnancy. Mm-hmm that I wasn't prepared for. Yeah, and I mean, you were barely even a teenager then, which is so crazy, and I'm sure for people listening that hadn't heard your story before, they're probably thinking, 14? Oh my gosh, like, that's so young. And it is so young, you know? Yes. Uh, So I guess, yeah, what was that like for the people around you? Like, how did your grandparents react? You know, were people telling you, like, you should end this pregnancy, or... You know, I guess, how did you arrive at the decisions you arrived at? Right. So, yes, 14. Now, you know, just to be honest, at that age, I felt grown. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was just circumstances, the life that I had lived, or if all 14-year-olds feel grown, but I felt grown. (laughs) I didn't feel Mm -hmm. so young. Now, yeah, looking at 14-year-olds, it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Still so much to learn. Yeah. Um, but so I did what most teenagers do and I hid it. Um, mm-hmm. I was not quick to come out and say, guess what, grandma, mm-hmm. grandpa. So actually I, word had gotten back to them that that might be the case. And I denied mm-hmm. it and they dropped it because that was just kind of the way of their generation, you know, sweep it under the rug, mm-hmm. except <laughs> You can only hide pregnancy for so long. (laughs) So um, during this time, I actually had a family member ask me to move out of state with them because their husband was going to be deployed and she wanted help with her young girls. And nothing came up. No one mentioned to her that I might in fact, be pregnant. And I felt like that was the next be- next best step was to accept the offer, move out of state and essentially run from my troubles. 
which mm-hmm. also you can't you can't run from yourself you know I mm-hmm. didn't realize that until later right um so no one found out I was pregnant until I was a little more than three months along and then it really hit the fan um Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think supportive would be the word that I would use I don't feel like I had much positive support at all and yeah no one took it well there's circumstances it's not it wasn't like a typical you know high school sweetheart love story and there's mm-hmm. circumstances that probably made it a lot harder for everyone to digest but at this age you know in my 30s I can look back and say still in that moment I needed people around me to step up and be the healthy adults and give me more support than what I got and so, no, it was a very toxic time in my life. And one of my lowest, you know, literally the only thing that kept me going was knowing that I had another life that I was responsible mm-hmm. for. And at that age, I didn't have any political or spiritual convictions against abortion. It just didn't feel right in my uh-huh. heart to consider right. that. And so, truly, this child saved my life. There's no telling. I could have died of a drug overdose, shady people, you name it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But knowing that I was now responsible for her well-being is what kept me going. Otherwise, I don't know. I might not be here to set and share this story with you. It was just my own stubbornness and desire to give this child a better life than what I felt I had been afforded. Mm -hmm. So the word abortion was absolutely thrown around and Mm -hmm. I was very adamant that that wasn't, you know, an option. And so then I was told that, you know, I, adoption had never been brought up before, even though I use that to describe the relationship with my grandparents. Now that's not anything that was used growing up. They didn't call it Mm -hmm. adoption. I really didn't know much about it um, Mm -hmm. at all, but that's the word that kept coming up. And essentially I was told if I chose to parent, I didn't have anywhere to go. I couldn't Mm -hmm. stay. I couldn't go back to my hometown. So my options became adoption or parent a child and be homeless at 15, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, 15 when I delivered. So I started looking into adoption Mm -hmm. and essentially at 14 years old, everything's done for you. I didn't have much say or input. A, a, A lady from the agency showed up at the house one day and asked me a lot of questions and, that's just kind of where it began, just mm-hmm. answering all the questions about everything, my life's history, you know, uh, health history, the things that I had done during pregnancy, just everything that is super uncomfortable and scary at 14. And then you're put into the situation where you know that it's really your only option. So you just show up and you go through the motions And then toward the end of that, they handed me three profiles of three hopeful adoptive families to look through. 
mm-hmm. and only only one of them stood out to me. The other two were automatic red flag no for me um, and want just one family. And I just felt like they were the ones. And so, you know, looking back at this point, like I can sit and reminisce and try to ponder all the details. And I think a lot of times we make up in our mind how we felt like it went. Um, but I think mm-hmm. the truth is most of it was a blur. You know, I remember chunks of time and I remember the first time I met with them in person and how they made me feel more comfortable than the home that I was living in. And they just felt safe and they felt loving. And that's all I wanted for this child. I wanted her to feel safe and I wanted her to feel loved. And that's something that I couldn't say for myself. And I knew, I knew then that it would have been really selfish for me to try to parent and bring her into a toxic home environment that I didn't even feel safe in. And it would, it would be devastating for me, but the best for her to send her into this loving home where she had a chance at a good life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine being in your shoes. And I mean, even as you describe it, it's like, I feel like yeah, your maturity level as like a 14 and 15 year old. I know you said looking back, it's like, oh my gosh, you were not grown at all. But still the decision process you went through, that's so much. I mean, like you said, you grew up really fast and I think your maturity level to think through like, okay, I'm not going to end this pregnancy. I want this child to be protected. I want it to have a better life than me. Like that, those are so many heavy decisions for such a young person to make. But It's really cool. Obviously, like now you can look back and say like that was God in your life, even if at the time you didn't know it. But I think that's really amazing. And so I guess you you pick the family. And then one thing I was wondering, I guess, because we see this like in movies a lot, I feel like or on TV shows is if if someone gives a child up for adoption or sorry, if someone places a child in adoption like that moment of actually like being in the hospital, delivering the baby and then like ah, is this still the right decision? Because, you know, when you hold a baby in your arms, that's so emotional. And I mean, obviously really hard to uh, surrender that child, I guess. So if, if the, again, if this is too personal, you don't have to share, but I was just wondering if you would want to tell us like what that moment was like. And when you actually did have to like say goodbye to her, what that was like for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, So her actual birth was somewhat of a whirlwind. Like it's scary, I think, for any woman. And then as a barely 15-year-old girl going into it, I think my mm-hmm. nerves were, you know, over the top, but then also just worried about what next. You know, like when I leave the hospital empty-handed, what what then? Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up being a very difficult birth. Mm-hmm. Um, she was nine pounds, nine ounces, and I had a small frame. Oh, as, wow. <laughs> yeah. The doctor that delivered her was an older gentleman that retired not long after, and he commented that it was the most difficult birth that he oh, had wow. been a part of. And she she got stuck in the birthing canal and ended up mm. with a shoulder dystocia. Mm. And so it was like the physical aspect of birth was just very taxing and traumatic. And then I had a fourth degree episiotomy. Mm. And 
so of course, you know, you're laying there to be stitched up and the nurse asked if I wanted to hold her and I said yes. And my guardian that was in the room with me was not happy mm-hmm. and vocalized how unhappy she was with that decision because mm-hmm. she didn't think that was healthy for me to want to hold this child that I was placing mm-hmm. um, for adoption. And I th- looking back, I'm so happy that I did what I felt was right for me. You know, I went through seasons where I felt pains of guilt for taking those first moments away from her, you know, adoptive parents. But then I come to the conclusion that, you know, they got her for a lifetime. They got a lifetime of Mm -hmm. first with her. And I'm really glad that I took those moments to hold her Mm -hmm. and, you know, just whisper my own affirmations to her. Obviously, you know, this newborn child's not going to remember it, but it was almost healing for me to be able to snuggle into her and say, you know, I love you. I really love you. And so after that, I do, I remember the last time I walked, the the hospital um, gave her parents uh, their own room uh, so that they could be with her. And I remember walking into their room for the last time and holding her and Mm -hmm you know, just leaving in hysterics. And Mm -hmm. at that time, uh, the adoption plan that we had made, it was very, I had made it very clear that I wanted to be able to see her again. And they said, you know, some birth mothers choose to visit on their first birthday. And I was like, okay, great. Uh, You know, I want to see her when she turns one and see how she's doing. And so we had made the plans to visit once she turned one, but it was my assumption that after that, I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet her again until she turned 18, and that would be her choice. Um, And at 21, if she hadn't found me, I could ask the adoption agency for her information and try to find her. So Hmm. I went, I left the hospital knowing I would get to see her in a year, and after that, I may never get to see her again. Hmm. and the adoption agency and my guardians did a really good job at keeping me in the dark of what my rights were and what was truly acceptable and unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So I just remember the next several days being a complete blur. You know, Mm -hmm. I left the hospital and felt absolutely broken to my core and so Mm -hmm. afraid that this child would grow up to think that I didn't love her. I didn't want her because that's Mm -hmm. the story I had been fed about my own biological mother. You know, Mm -hmm. she's not around because she didn't want you. So it only made sense to me that that would be what she was told too. And then in my head, I'm thinking, well, if that's what she's told, why in the world would she want to meet me when she's 18? Like I'll probably never see this kid again. And just holding on living through that, reality in full force for the next few days um, was really difficult. And the home that I lived in, I had younger cousins that were too young to even understand that I was pregnant. And so to come home physically healing from a really difficult birth and then mentally grieving this loss 
I ended up getting dropped off with a friend, not one of my friends, one of my guardian's friends who was actually like nine months pregnant and Mm -hmm. she was very sweet and loving, but it also just added to my own, you know, despair, I guess you could say that I felt in that season. But again, it's easier to look back. And I think looking back, that was the best place for me to be for those few days because she was more nurturing than what I was accustomed to. And it Mm -hmm. felt like she really cared and she cried with me. And those are things that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And then after that, life got really hard again. You know, no longer was I protecting this child. In my mind, I wanted to become someone worth knowing should she ever try to seek me out one day. But then my home life got even more toxic and I was under constant watch. I couldn't resort back to old ways. I couldn't cope with drugs or alcohol, but I was being verbally, mentally, and sexually abused daily. And so life just felt really bleak. It just kind of felt like you just have to survive. And if you can survive and get out of this alive, be someone worth knowing. And maybe one day you'll get to see your birth child again. Mm-hmm. And so that that was my reality for a, a couple years until I finally mustered up the strength to run away. And I ran away from that home. I was reported as a runaway. I was picked up out of state by an officer who then reported it to the county I'd ran away from, the state I'd ran away from, who had apparently been tipped off that my home wasn't safe. And they actually Mm -hmm. told the arresting officer that they needed to let me go, that it wasn't safe to return me. And then I started an expensive battle for my own independence and I fought to get emancipated through the court system. I got emancipated Mm -hmm. at 17 and then that's when the real fun began. (laughs) Wow yeah as you said it's like a lifetime original like one crazy thing (laughs) after the other and um, I believe if I remember correctly it was around that time that you started working at Taco Bell, right? Where <laughs> where part of your story took place? <laughs> yes, yes. I definitely did not have boys on the brain at this point in my life. I mm-hmm. had endured so much from the hands of men in my life that oh, yeah. I just... I just wanted to live my life. I just wanted to be happy. I wanted joy and hope and freedom and all these things that I felt were so out of reach for so many years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, part of living a happy, healthy life is having a happy, healthy income. And Mm -hmm. at 17 years old, you know, your options are limited. So I got a job at Taco Bell and there was this boy you know, and he was, he became a really good friend. He just, he was fun to be around. He was different than the other boys. Like at this particular Taco Bell, the boys that worked there made it a game to see who could get a date with the new girl first. Like 
I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times I had been asked out, begged out, and I it was no, no, I don't date. I can't date. I won't date. You're not my type. Like, just mm-hmm. no, no, no. And then this boy comes along, and he's so different, and he just wants to be a friend, and he wants to go play basketball and go get ice cream. And it's really funny. So at this point in my life, I started dressing like a boy. But no one that worked with me knew that because we had uniforms that we had to wear. And so Mm -hmm. the first time that Casey asked me if I wanted to hang out, he asked if I wanted to go play basketball. And I was like, yeah, I love that. I've always been a tomboy. And so I show up to the basketball court in men's basketball shorts that hang past my knee some pair of nikes that matched the color and probably some either i had on one of those white a-frame shirts the wife beaters or Mm. i had on a 2x shirt and i was definitely a comfortable smaller medium at the time and (laughs) (laughs) he was taught like now you know that we've been together so long he was like I just thought you were dressing for the game I thought you were dressing like a basketball (laughs) player but in reality that's what I wore every day like that was my closet (laughs) I shopped in the men's department and I'd actually had a therapist tell me that uh, subconsciously that was me trying to deflect the attention of men which is probably true yeah So we just started playing basketball and eating ice cream. And then my emancipation was finalized and I had been doing really good at my high school. I didn't want to transfer my senior year. I wanted to go back and finish. Were you living like with friends or? Um, After I ran away and got emancipated, I moved back into my grandparents' house only for the duration of the emancipation because the plan was always to go back and finish high school. And once Mm -hmm. my emancipation was finalized, um, me and this boy, this Taco Bell boy, had been hanging out (laughs) for about four months. And when it was time for me to leave, my grandpa was like, why don't you invite him to go with you? Now, I don't know about you, but in my family, (laughs) like, that just sounds off. Like, your grandpa doesn't suggest that you take this boy that you've known for four months out of state with you to move in with. Um, So I don't know if that was God's prompting, if my grandpa just felt like he truly was a good boy, soon to be man, and would Mm -hmm. take care of me and protect me. But for whatever it was, my grandpa suggested this. And I was like, this boy has known me for four months. He's not going to leave his family to move, you know, 600 miles away with me so -hmm. that I can finish high school. And Mm -hmm. he's like, well, you never know if you don't ask. (laughs) It's like, well, I guess you're right. Um, So I did. I asked him, I invited him. I said, you know, I, I got my emancipation papers. I'm moving back to finish high school. You're welcome to come with me. He had graduated the year before. He's a year and a half older than I am and wasn't doing anything but working at Taco Bell. And so he was like, you know, I've always wanted to get out of this town. So, yeah, I think I will. And uh, (laughs) he he told his dad, here comes the sequel to our Lifetime original. He told his dad. (laughs) 
And his dad said, absolutely not. And I forbid you from seeing this girl ever again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, he was 18. So he did what any responsible 18 year old would do. And he wrote a letter and left it in his father's mailbox (laughs) and left with me in the middle of the night. Um, so we have been married now for 13 years, so it worked in our favor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you guys were pretty young then when you got married, right? Yeah. We, let's see, I was 20. Yeah. I believe I was 20 and he was 21 when we got married or 19 and 20, maybe 19 and 20. Okay. So you waited a couple years. We got engaged after being together a year, roughly. I don't keep up with dates. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you when our first date was. I couldn't tell you what day he proposed. None of that stuff. I don't remember those things. Yeah. But we were together roughly a year when he proposed. And then we stayed engaged for two years, which is entirely too long, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were <laughs> we were engaged for two years before we got married. Okay. So at what point, because at first, you know, Casey was just your friend. So at what point did you tell him about your past and especially the fact that you were a biological mother? Like when did you wait to tell him that or did he know that all along or what was that like? It came up pretty quick because... Mm -hmm. We lived in, again, I keep calling it a small town. I realized there's much smaller, but it felt small for us. And it mm-hmm. seemed like everybody knew your business. And so people talk and people had heard that that's why I left state. And no one knew with any certainty. There wasn't Facebook back then. There wasn't yeah. Instagram. You know, I wasn't doing status updates. It was mm-hmm. all just hearsay. And the rumor mill got back to him. And so he actually was really mature about it. And when we had went out one night, all I remember, I don't even remember where we were going. I remember that we, I got in the car, we had a friend with us that she was a mutual friend. And he was like, I really need to ask you something. And I don't want to wait any longer because I just want to hear the truth from you. And Mm -hmm. he starts, you know, regurgitating all these things. He had heard some of it true, some of it not. And so we just had a long talk. And then Mm -hmm. um, whenever he decided that he did want to move out of state with me is when I really got down to the nitty gritty. And I was I've always been pretty Um, Mm self-aware. And even then I knew that I was going to have a lifetime of healing ahead of me. And just kind of explained, you know, this is my past. You're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But also there's a lot of, a lot of trauma that comes with this. And I'm not Mm -hmm. just your average easy go lucky girlfriend. Um, (laughs) It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be a a journey. And if you want out, I understand no hard feelings, but I just want you to be completely aware that this is what I'm dealing with. It's going to result in a lot of things to work through down the road. And mm-hmm. now's your chance. You know, mm-hmm. are you in? You know, like, <laughs> if you're yeah. in, you're in. If you're not, go ahead and jump ship. And I completely understand. And he was like, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to, we're going to do this together. Mm-hmm. And he has held true to that. He's really had to put up with a lot over the years. 
and he has always been willing to walk beside me and mm-hmm. walk through healing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so special. During that journey, your daughter would have turned one. So kind of going back to that, did you end up seeing her for her first birthday? I did. I did. Um, this was, okay. so she turned one while I was actually still in the living with the guardians that I had been living with. And mm-hmm. I did, I got to go see her for her first birthday and it felt really special and also really final because again, mm-hmm. I thought that that was the last time I would get to see her unless she chose to see me again mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. 18. So, you know, I took all the pictures and I soaked it all up, but just being a birth mother in general opens up the door to a lot of, a lot of grief, a lot of trauma, a lot of chance, it, a, a lot of like anxiety, depression, suffering, like there's just a lot that comes along with it. It's, you know, it's been villainized in the past as, you know, you did the easy thing or you were just selfish and, you know, wanted to make your life easier. And Mm -hmm. that's very, very, very seldom the case, very seldom. It's none of those things. And so every opportunity to send a card to get together, anything like that stirs up a hundred what ifs, you know, Mm -hmm. what if I would have parented? What if, you know, I would have made this choice differently or done this differently. And, you know, what ifs will eat you alive and Mm -hmm. normally feed into another cycle of depression. And Mm -hmm. so I've, I've battled, you know, depression for most of, my life, definitely all of my adult life. And a lot of it just stems from the choices that I've made. A lot of it stems from things that I had no control over, but I did get to see her. And one of the, the, you know, now they have birth mother's day and there's all this awareness around being a birth mother and recognizing all sides of the adoption triad. And that's relatively new no one recognized that part of me until Casey. And so the Mm. first year that we were together again, still kids, like he was 18, I was 17. We were living together. I was finishing high school and holidays were always especially hard. And so mother's day was coming up and I was slipping into a funk and he got me one of those obnoxiously gigantic cards. Have you ever seen them? Like <laughs> he got me. Yeah, I know. You're <laughs> so he got one of those for me for Mother's Day, telling me that I was a I was a mom and I was a good mom, and he couldn't wait for me to be the mother of his children because he knew that I would be a great parent one day. And it was just like if I didn't know before that moment. I knew in that moment, like he gets it the best that he can get it. And he's going to be here to hold my hand and support me through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. And so, okay. So you mentioned you, when you saw her on her first birthday, you kind of thought like, this is it. Like, and I won't see you again for God knows how long. So did you bring that up at all to the, to her adoptive parents? Like, did you, ever talk to them about that? 
No, no. <laughs> they have always been super kind to me, but it was never one of those things. Like I felt like I could talk to them about anything. Like yeah. I very much had been trained throughout my life to keep my feelings to myself. Like mm-hmm. everything was internalized. I vocalized not to them, but I had vocalized, you know, how I'm pretty sure, I, you know, I'm pretty positive. I vocalized that, you know, I hoped that she would want to see me one day Mm -hmm. is probably the extent of what I vocalized, but I don't know how many times I just said vocalized, but it was a lot and that was probably (laughs) obnoxious, (laughs) but no, it never came up. I've just always, you know, to this day tried to be very, very adamant about how thankful I am for any opportunity given. So Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that thank you a hundred times. Thank you for this opportunity. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I was just grateful for what I got. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I wanted to ask because I feel like that's something people might've been wondering, but also even just for like kind of what you said, addressing that stereotype of like people who place their children in adoption, like don't care or, or whatever. It's like, Man, even if there's an adoptive parent listening who maybe thought, yeah, the the mom just seemed like like she didn't even mention like seeing the baby later on or something like that. It's like, oh, maybe they're dying to ask that and they just don't have the yeah. courage to or whatever, you know? Yes. Um, so I that's yes. why I love getting your perspective. It's just it's so it's such a unique perspective. And I think I've told you I've done a couple interviews about adoption, but it's always on the side of the adoptive parents. And I, I just don't think yeah. we get to hear from a standpoint like yours enough. So really, really cool. I know you are dying to know what happens next in this story. Don't worry, this Lifetime original is not yet over. You've only heard the half of it. Raquel will be back next week to tell us about how the relationship with her birth daughter continued and what her family looks like now. She's also helping to bring more awareness to the rights of birth mothers and reminding us of the stories we need to think about more often when we think of adoption. I love getting this perspective from her because, like I said, we just don't get it enough. Birth mothers need more advocates, that is for sure, and I hope hearing her story today helped you to address some stereotypes and things you can think of more often when it comes to adoption. But again, you need to subscribe to the show so you can hear part two. Subscribing is important so you can easily find my show again in the future, and also so you know when new episodes are available. All you have to do is click the subscribe button, and that's free to do on whatever app you're currently on. It's like the staples button. That was easy, right? Just click and you're done, and I promise I won't spam you. You'll just get a little friendly notification when a new episode is available. Don't forget about leaving a rating and a review for the show while you're over there also. The links to connect with both Raquel and I online are also there, along with the link to shop Simply Straws. All right, friends, until next time, remember to look out for the most vulnerable around you. Remember to think about the untold sides of every story and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out. Thinking of you, I-